Um, welcome to our new time. Uh, and uh, this, we did this so that uh, people who couldn't come at our noon time could come. But we're also shifting the, shifting the um, format a little bit. The class will go till 6.45. And it's going to happen every week. If I'm not here, somebody else will convene so that there's an opportunity to study the portion every week. There's no fee for this class. There's a basket for donations to the synagogue in honor of our Torah study, which you are welcome to make and you don't have to make. Okay, so if you ever want to put some cash or a check in there in honor of studying Torah here, that's what it's for, but there's no fee for this class. Okay, and I want to thank Karen and Gail who, uh, uh, hi Esther. Oh, does everyone have a cup? Grab, uh, grab one of those blue books right there. One of the. Um, for suggesting that we try it at this time. I'm feeling right now at this time of day, it's nice to, it's a different energy of the day. It's, it's a nice energy. Hi, welcome. I'll repeat the things I said at the end. We decided to start the class this week. Welcome, welcome. Oh, there's more people coming. Hi, Leah. Oh, what a nice turnout. Right, Leah also couldn't make it to the noontime class. This is great. I'm so excited. Here, sit here. And as is our custom, let's learn the names of people nearby us. Uh, so that we don't have to try to remember everybody's name, but at least the people sitting next yeah. to you. Thank you so much. Like I said, it was Gail and Karen who uh, had this idea. Yeah. Because Gail has a big job. Too. Yeah. Good. So I was saying that I like, I'm feeling this is a good time of day to sit and breathe for a minute. So, we decided to start this week, which is the week. Welcome, welcome. There's another chair over, spot over here if you want. Um, we're in the midst of, we're in the midst of Sukkot, the festival of Sukkot. Simchat Torah, which is the very last day of the festivals, is on Monday night and Tuesday. And... On Simchat Torah, we read the very end of the Torah and the very beginning of the Torah. And then next Shabbat, on October 29th, is the Shabbat of Breshit, in the beginning, where we start the reading again. I'll be away next week, so Karen's going to convene. <laughs> and... Um, uh, and we thought, when we were looking at the calendar, let's start a week early and sort of set the stage for our endeavor of studying the Torah every week through the cycle of the year. And so I have two things I want to do tonight. One is look at some writings about 
how to look at Torah from the Jewish tradition. And then let's look at the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, uh, so we can read the very end before we go to the beginning next week, okay? Okay, so does anyone have any things they want to th- toss into this? As uh, There's a lot of wisdom around this table, so this is going to really be our Torah study. No, I just want to really thank you for being open to doing this. It was like so important to me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad. Oh, you're, anything else? <laughs> Ellen? Yes, I was mentioning before you came in that Ellen had this beautiful idea that we name this Torah study class the Stu Maurer mm. Memorial oh, Torah mm. study class. And we'll just, uh, I think it's just the most beautiful idea. So, and the seat of honor is whoever's sitting right here. That's right. <laughs> Anthony tonight. That's where Stu likes to sit. And I'll check with Maeve just to make sure it's okay with her, but I'm sure she'll say it's okay. But I thought that was such a beautiful idea. Good. As, as his mishpukah. That's right. I'm totally in favor. Yeah, Stu is, Stu is our most steadfast member for so long. So we think about him a lot. And his memory is a blessing. Uh, Max, uh, Maxan Resnick took a hike up Overlook on the morning of Rosh Hashanah in his memory and sent me pictures of the sea of clouds underneath the mountaintops that she saw that morning. You don't want to leave this seat empty, do you? No, no. Okay. No, I don't. Um, so, what I have here are two excerpts from the Jewish mystical literature, which I think will be fun to read uh, as to sort of like expand our minds before we actually touch the text. So, um, yes. No, you don't start over again. Over again, that's what I meant. Right. Yeah. Simchat, whatever the first Shabbat is after Simchat Torah is when you start at Genesis again. Oh, okay. And at Simchat Torah, we will be reading on the Monday night, we'll be reading the very end of Deuteronomy and the very beginning of Genesis, as is customary. And one of the nice things about that is that the, the last word of the Torah is Yisrael, and it ends with a Lamed. And the first word of the Torah is Bereshit, which begins with a Bet. So it's been pointed out that if you put the last letter and the first letter of the Torah together, because it's a scroll, you get the word Lev, which means heart. Um, but Lev is not just heart, it's also 32. Lamed is 30 and Bet is 2. And 32, in Jewish uh, interpretation, represents every letter of the alphabet and the 10 integers, the 10 numbers, 0 through 9. So, or shall I say, one, you know, 0 through 9. And so what that means in Kabbalah is the numbers represent the 10 sfirot, the 10 attributes of the tree of life, and the 22 letters represent the different, all the pathways you can draw between all of those centers. So it's essentially a number that represents every possible combination and permutation. 
and uh, that's what Torah study is. So I really like that. Hybrew, yeah? Right. The portion for this Shabbat is not v'zot habrachah because when we're in a festival, oh, this is worth describing too. So, Bruri, if you want a chumash, they're, they're on the. Uh, yes, the, and and there's no there's no uh, wrong questions here. Um, so I appreciate Gwen raising that. The Torah is divided into 54 portions, weekly portions, the five books of Moses. Some of those portions in some years are combined into what we call double portions for a variety of reasons, including if a festival falls on a Shabbat, we don't read the reading for that week. We'll read a special reading out of order that is, a trip that is about that festival. So there are two cycles of sacred history, of sacred literature that we travel in the year. One is the Shabbat cycle and the other is the festival cycle. So for example, I was talking with Carol about this earlier today. In the Shabbat cycle, we come to the story of the Exodus from Egypt usually in January. That's just the progression, right? Starting in now and working our way through. But then when Passover comes, we're going to read those passages again, out of order. Because, uh, so, so we're going to be making our way through the Shabbat cycle, but there may be interruptions occasionally because of festivals where we then go out of order to a special reading attributed to that festival. That makes sense, right? Good, good. So let's look at these writings as a way of sort of uh, uh, setting, our, setting our stage. I think I have enough. Take one and pass it along. So there are two extra weeks, 54. Right. Do you want me to explain that too? I'll be happy to. If that's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, In the solar year, I mean in the lunar year, which is what the Jewish calendar follows, um, a lunar year is less than 52 weeks. A solar year is 365 days, and a lunar year is 354 days. So without having to do all the math, it's two weeks shorter than a solar year. So, normally we'd only have 50 Shabbats in a lunar year, a Jewish year. So, um, but every th approximately third year, we have a Jewish leap year where a whole lunar month is added to the calendar. Otherwise, as I've explained to some, some of you, otherwise our uh, holidays wouldn't stay aligned with the seasons. Right. Okay, so we have what's called a lunar slash solar calendar. So eight of the portions are combined into double portions so that there are four double portions added and that adds up to 50. But during a leap year, those get split up so that it can be 54 portions. And whoever figured this out was really a genius. I mean, 
because it goes more complicated than that because there are certain portions that are always read at certain times of year. We always read the same portion during Hanukkah. We always read Nitzavim and Deuteronomy right before Rosh Hashanah. We always read Deuteronomy right, um, uh, is it before Tisha B'Av or after? Uh, um, Shabbat Chazon, right before Tisha B'Av. So um, I don't know how they did that, but it's really cool the way it works out every year. So even, if, even in the leap year. So somebody did this incredible puzzle and made it work. Yeah, without a computer. <laughs> okay, so what have we here? Um, this is from Danny Matt's beautiful little book called The Essential Kabbalah. Look on the page on the front that says the essence of Torah at the top. I love this reading because it turns usual wisdom on its head. Uh, somebody want to read it aloud? Someone enjoy reading aloud? Okay. Oh, go ahead, Anne. There was a man who lived in the mountains. He knew nothing about those who lived in the city. He sowed wheat and ate the kernels raw. One day he entered the city. They brought him good bread. He said, what is this for? They said, bread to eat. He ate and it tasted very good. He said, what is it made of? And they said, wheat. Later, they brought him cakes kneaded in oil. He tasted them and said, what are these made of? They said, wheat. Finally, they brought him royal pastry made with honey and oil. He said, and what are these made of? <coughs> they said, wheat. He said, I am the master of all of these, for I eat the essence of all of these, wheat. Because of that view, he knew nothing of the delights of the world. They were lost to him. So it is one who grasps. So it is with. So it is with one who grasps the principle and does not know all those delectable delights deriving, diverging from that principle. Thank you. So aren't the stories usually about going to the hermit in the mountains? who has the real wisdom distilled distilled the essence and in this one if you have the essence without the delight of interpretation then you're missing the human factor and Torah study is delightful because we bring all of our ingredients yes. to the essence I just love that uh, um, anyone want to say anything else about it? Now, you will find other readings that will talk about the essence, and we need to get to the essence. But I love a reading that says, this guy didn't get it at all. Um, our Torah study together, we are going to delight in adding all of our ingredients to it. And that's, that's sort of mm, where the tom is, where the flavor is, where the, uh, we make it taste better. That's comparable to this uh, famous saying about how God and human beings are partners. And this is a story about challah, because God provides the wheat, and then we turn it into this astounding creation. And that's a partnership 
between us and the Creator, same with studying Torah. There's the essence of wisdom that emanates from the universe, and we get to bake it and knead it and then enjoy it. Gail? I, I also like that the uh, metaphor is so physical because Torah is so physical in the Hebrew and because Judaism so emphasizes the importance of the physical world. So it's, it's not sort of like intellectual interpretation. It's bringing ourselves fully embodied into the experience of it. That's right. So we pound, we mix, we knead. You know, it's like, that's, it's a nice image. Who are the bread bakers here? I know Karen's a baker and I know others. It's like the miracle of creating deliciousness out of the raw materials. Yeah? Reminds me of that group that you run with Matthew and you're going to have a Sufi. Yeah, we're going to have Sufi teachers because too. you take wheat and you bring the individual heart from each tradition into that and make delicious things. Yes, so. yes. Um, so, yes, thank you. The physicalness of it and the relationship of uh, people who are making, taking wheat kernels and thanks to God's miraculous creation, figuring out how to turn them into delicious variety. Beautiful. So take that as, yes, Berea. And it goes a little, a lot further because when you bake a challah, it's not just a challah that you have, but you have the blessing of the creation that is used as a symbol of freedom, of a day of rest, and mm -hmm. everything that goes with the Shabbat. So let's take the analogy a little further. Eating it is a communal enjoyment, right? It's something that we're going to do together. We then ingest it. So we knead it, we let it rise, we, do, we bake it, and then we ingest it. And it's something that we do as a profoundly social activity. So again, Judaism is not a hermetic tradition. There are aspects of Judaism that involve, thank goodness, being alone, being in the wilderness, being, you know, there's plenty of that. But Torah study as it develops is a profoundly interactive engagement. And that doesn't mean that the other avenues towards uh, greater consciousness aren't, aren't completely valid and important, and I'm just saying Torah study is not that, primarily. So uh, that's, that, that's why I wanted to read this to kind of set our, set our table uh, um, first. So let's look at this other one. It's a little longer. Um, this is from the Zohar. So let me tell you what the Zohar is. I believe the other one is too, but I didn't look up the citation. There are many levels of interpretation, of, of, of sacred interpretation of the Bible. Um, and in the early Middle Ages emerges a, a level of interpretation that exists prior to that, but then becomes prominent really prominent in Jewish life, which is that, well, that's a nice one. Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
it's okay. The ultimate Kabbalist. Uh, Bach. Totally, totally empty. Well, Bach was in Gematrius. You know, we have sound, but only the composer <laughs> takes all those notes. <laughs> that's right. A composer is doing a similar thing. There's sound, and the composer refines it and kneads it and mixes it. That is the human factor. Beautiful. And so Bach was a Kabbalist? Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, he was into Gematria. Uh -huh. All that work that he all did. All the fugues. All the fugues. Yeah, the fugues and so on. His name. He, he, did, he did all kinds of um, um, composition based on the letters of his name. Yeah. Really? Yeah. But he wasn't Jewish. No. No, but uh, the, uh, in the Renaissance, Bach, in the Renaissance, Christians became interested in Hebrew and in the Hebrew Bible and in Jewish studies and mysticism. And so much of what we know of as the occult uh, that emerges in Enlightenment Europe is based on their studies of the Hebrew alphabet and such. So yeah, they, they, that's why when you look at, say, the, the, the um, shield of uh, Harvard, no, is it Yale? Yale, yeah. Yale it Emmet. says, Emmet for or. it says, uh, yeah, Emmet. Emmet, truth and light, right? Or Urim v'tumim. So um, uh, these, were all, all, these were folks who were studying Hebrew. They weren't Jewish, but they were studying Hebrew and very interested. Um, uh, Zohar. Hmm? Zohar. Zohar. But I'm just remembering, if Bach used the letters of his name in his mm -hmm. pieces, uh, I would, you know, that's, when you look at uh, um, a contemporary of Bach, um, uh, Shlomo Alkabetz in Tzfat in the 1600s, when was Bach alive? About then, eh? 17th. Yeah, okay. Um, Baroque. Um, uh, Shlomo Alkabetz would put his initials in the first letter of each stanza of his poems, like Lechadodi. He um, died in 1750. Oh, so we are in the right, right, so 18th century. Yeah. So uh, he also did the same thing with his uh, poetry, like in Lechadodi. And then the writer of Yadid Nefesh. Do we know who the writer is? Is that all? Um, you don't have to look it up, it's all right. Uh, put each of the four stanzas, which is a, love, a, 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 a mystical love poem to God, uh, put the letters yud He vav He at the begin as the as the acrostic in his love poem, the name of God, just like people. So anyway, I would be very interested in knowing more about about that stuff, and my knowledge is totally spotty. But um, I was uh, reading that um, there's a tradition that Moses put his signature on the Torah. This is a little digression, but it's pretty cool. Um, let me see if I can remember it. Um, was it in? I put Google attributed Yudid Nefesh to Azikri. To Shlomo Azikri, uh-huh. Okay, great. So, um, Okay, I'm not going to be able to, you, uh, hold on, Vav, Aleph, Mem, Ka. Okay, somehow someone looked at the first letters of several verses in the last speech of Moses, and they see his signature hidden in there. Was it like the Atbash? 
isn't it? When you have, you move a code. Related, yeah. Okay, so the Zohar becomes a treatment of Torah where not only are we looking at the level of the plain meaning of the text, but we're imagining that in our ability to add ingredients of ourself, just like that bread image, every letter of the text is going to reveal un- untold meanings. So this is, uh, and that the physical garment is the book itself. That's considered to be a garment. Un- by, by penetrating under the physical surface of the garment, you will get to the essence of the divine energy that that garment houses. And so this is a profoundly creative activity, as many of us know from doing it for many years. We won't ignore the plain meaning of the text, but we won't stop there, right? And uh, the reason we're still studying Torah, as I've described in different ways at many times, is because if we treated it only as a physical artifact, it would be of interest, but it wouldn't be about us. And it's because we treat it as though it's about us and our lives, it becomes the vehicle in Jewish study for revealing deeper and deeper insights. And Jews have been doing that for thousands of years. So in this passage, Rabbi Shimon, the hero of the Zohar, said, anybody feel like reading? Esther, did you want to read? Rabbi Shimon said, Woe to the human being who says that Torah represents mere stories and ordinary words. If so, we could compose a Torah right now with ordinary words and better than all of them. What a thing to say! To present matters of the world. Even rulers of the world possess words more sublime. If so, let us follow them and make a Torah out of them. Ah, But all the words of Torah are sublime words, sublime secrets. Come and see. The world above and the world below are perfectly balanced. Israel below, the angels above. Of the angels it is written, he makes his angels spirits. But when they descend, they put on the garment of this world. If they did not put on a garment befitting this world, and they could not endure in this world, and the world could not endure them. If this is so with angels, how much more so with Torah, who created them in all the worlds, and for whose sake they all exist. In descending to this world, if she did not put on the garments of this world, the world could not endure. Okay, hold on a second, thank you. So, Torah is personified here. Do you see that? Uh, Torah, is understood not, this is the, the physical shade, the, the, the sort of, the, what, what, dis, what kind of, um, we can kind of, the light is so unhousable, so immense, so beyond uh, containing, and yet here we are in this world with an object that is a doorway into accessing that light. That is the Jewish view. But this is really pale. That's the word I want to use. A pale 
um, uh, kind of impression of it. And, uh, and Torah itself in the Jewish spiritual language is the wisdom of the universe that's inherent in all creation. In other words, there's Torah in the trees. There's Torah, and, that, and, to, and Torah is the blueprint by which the creator um, ima- imagined creation. Right? So it's a completely, completely mystical, astounding concept that that's Torah. This is Torah, but this is supposed to lead us to the Torah that has inhered in the universe since before creation, since before there was a physical universe. Karen? I was just thinking about how different your words would come to me if instead of holding this object, you had the scroll. I would have a whole different... Oh, then we should get the scroll and talk about it that way. Uh, Yeah, let's see what our feelings and thoughts are about that. I'll go get one. We have to stand the whole time. Um, no, until it's just for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> if the tour is up, you're up. If the tour is down, you can sit down. <laughs> I think there's also a tradition where people would have scrolls in their homes, right? I mean, not very often. They no, take they, they take like a year to write. There's no, almost nobody could afford a private scroll. Oh, yes, you should stand for a little while. Okay, Karen. <laughs> 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 but we're being physical, so I thought I, you know, I like that image of, like, physicalizing it. So here it is. Or here she is. Here she is, thank you. In her finery. Here she is, also known in the Jewish tradition as Chochmah, which translates into Greek as Sophia, right? Which means wisdom. Wisdom. Sophia, also a feminine presence, the consort and the love lover of God the Creator, right? And so Torah... Torah in Jewish tradition, going way back before Kabbalah, becomes the personification of that female, feminine wisdom that inheres in the universe. I'm thinking of the of the um, the desire to create something beautiful that is um, endemic in everyone in every culture, mm-hmm. and to make something beautiful to cover. The Torah with is, is we adorn it. We adorn and it. And I embrace it. You're right. Oh, that's right. We embrace the Torah when we hold it. It's not, mm-hmm. we, and we're not just handling a, a, a volume. Right. You're yeah. right. Yeah. And yeah. our Torah right now is stripped down. It has all kinds of decorations. We have the adornments, but <laughs> right now, during the high holidays, we just like to put a plain white <laughs> cover on. Yeah. And soon we'll replace it and put back the adornments on. Well, we rarely use, but we have fancy silver right. rounds, mm-hmm. pomegranates right. for the tops, and all kinds of right, things. Right, right. We adorn it and we embrace it. Oh, so, and I love holding it because when I talk like that, I'm like, I'm feeling it. It's such yeah. a beautiful thing. And Simchat Torah, we dance with it. Gloria, you wanted to add something? Yes, I have two thoughts. One is that you're holding like you're holding a baby. Uh huh. Yeah. And the baby is, it really helpless unless you hold her, her baby. Mm-hmm. 
But as you hold a baby, it grows, it develops. Isn't that and it develops to a tree. And the Torah is tree of life. That, a tree of life. And it roots. It's not just flying in the air. Aha, uh -huh, you're right. And the Beautiful. tree is swaying in the wind. Mm -hmm. And it goes around with whatever it has on it, with whatever fragrance it has, or beauty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'm coming back to the roots. Beautiful. The Hebrew language is a root language. Ah, uh, right. If every word in Hebrew, almost, have a root that develops into a Tree. Right, every word grows into a tree. This tree word root. And in, in can, Hebrew, we call the root the shoresh, which is the same word for root in Hebrew, right? The root of the meaning. That's beautiful. So, what we're doing is just what that first reading was describing. The wheat is a wheat kernel, but we, with our poetry and our metaphor and our, you know, we make it into something more and more rich. That's what I want to communicate about Torah study. So I'll return this so that we don't just have to stand the whole time. And, but think about the standing. It's we rise before this physical representation of Sophia, of the supernal wisdom that we want to, we want to suckle from, we want to taste, we want to ingest, imbibe. Embody. Yeah. Mm. Thanks. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> yeah. And anybody who wants to hold the Torah, you can always go into the sanctuary and try this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll bring it back. Can you always face the Torah? Oh, yes. It's customary to face the Torah, not bring your back to it. We haven't taught that too much here. This is just the right prelude to what we want to, you know, to taking on this cycle. So, um, Esther, would you, if, so, uh, if the angels need to be garbed in order to endure in the world, how much more so this supernal Torah? If she did not put on the garments of this world, the world could not endure. Go ahead. If this is so with the angels, how much more so with Torah? who created them and all the worlds, and for whose sake they all exist. In descending to this world, if she did not put on the garments of this world, the world could not endure. So this story of Torah is the garment of Torah. Whoever thinks that the garment is the real Torah and not something else, may his spirit deflate. <laughs> he will have no portion in the world that is coming. That is why David said, open my eyes so I can see wonders out of your Torah. What is, the, under, what is under the garment of Torah? Come and see. There is a garment visible to all. When these, 
When those fools see someone in a good-looking garment, they look no further. But the essence of the garment is the body. The essence of the body is the soul. So it is with Torah. She has a body, the commandments of Torah, called the embodiment of Torah. This body is clothed in garments. The stories of this world, fools of the world, look only at the garment, the story of Torah. They know nothing more. They do not look at what is under the garment. Those who know more do not look at the garment, but rather at the body under that garment, the wise ones, servants of the king on high, those who stood at Mount Sinai, look only at the soul, root of all, real Torah. Hmm. In the time to come, they are destined to look at the soul of the soul of Torah. Come and see, so it is above. There is garment, body, soul, and soul of soul. The heavens and their hosts are the garment. The communion of Israel is the body who receives the soul, beauty of Israel. So she is the body of the soul. This is all very, this paragraph is very Kabbalah talk, so don't get too hung up on what each of those things mean. <clears throat> the soul we have mentioned is beauty of Israel, real Torah. The soul of the soul is the holy ancient one. All is connected, this one to that one. Woe to the wicked who say that Torah is merely a story. They look at this garment and no further. Happy are the righteous who look at Torah properly. As wine must sit in a jar, so Torah must sit in this garment. So look only at what is under the garment. All those words and all those stories are garments. Cool, huh? <coughs> Um, Jonathan? Yes. So, beauty of Israel is to fair it, but right. what, is, what is communion? Um, um, Shekhinah. So, Malchut, Tiferet, um, the holy ancient one is Keter. So, right. in ascending the tree of life, each of these is a, is a name of, a, of an uh, element of the tree of life. They're all connected, but each one is more either infinite and supernal or condensed and accessible to us so that the tree of life imagines, think of the tree, um, roots in heaven, an upside down tree, and the essence of beyond the beyond feeds the roots and then becomes more and more something we can um, access until that tree branches and blossoms and leaves, that's the part that we're in con contact with, as opposed to the unseen root. And yet, they're all connected, right? Uh, from the most essential spiritual to the most, most physical fruit. The fruit is part of the tree. There's a story we listen to over and over with my kids about coyote uh, when they were little on cassette about Coyote who thinks he's so smart and uh, there's a fruit tree and he needs to share it with, I forget what the other animal is, and the other animal says, Sh uh, Coyote says, I want that fruit and the other animal says, sure, you take the top half of the tree 
and I'll take the bottom half. And so Coyote takes all the fruit, and the next year, he doesn't have anything. And the other animal, of course, has the tree that re-sprouts and grows again. And, and again. And again, and again, right, right. So that's an, I like that story. Okay, so um, look on, you see at the top of uh, 136 that we were just looking at, it says, he will have no per portion in the world that is coming. Do you see that line, the second line from the top? Uh, the, before that it said, yeah, whoever thinks that the garment is the real Torah may his spirit deflate. He will have no portion in the world that is coming. I just want to point that out to you. This isn't a Kabbalah class, but one of the beautiful things about the Zohar is that they translate the word olam haba, which is usually translated as the world to come, meaning it's going to come, as olam haba, which can equally be translated as the world that is coming. In other words, constantly. And they use as their proof text oh, their, one of their favorite phrases, which is a river flows from Eden and waters the garden, meaning the earth. And for them, they talk about that river all the time, that there's a river that's always flowing, and that is the world that is coming. You cannot access the world that is coming if you don't look under the garment of the physical and into the affective and the spiritual and the emotional and the visionary, all of those elements of human beings that are not physical. Um, of course, a spiritual discipline would want to access, nurture, and draw out our creative imagination. That's what we're doing. It's not a college class in Old Testament. You know, I took that class and I learned a lot about ancient Israel and about archaeology and about it's good stuff to learn, but that's not what Torah study is. Torah study is not a physical enterprise. Torah study is an imaginative, visionary, emotional, affective, intellectual engagement. All things that are not the plain outside meaning. right? And it's just like any juicy class or any book that thrilled you or any uh, art piece that you couldn't get your eyes off of. There's something under the garment. Do you follow what I'm saying, everybody? And the Jewish path of Torah study is that. Um, so uh, when we study Parshas, we'll be covering all of those levels. And as you've heard me teach over the years, it's very helpful if we identify, oh, you're talking about that level. Yes, on the physical level, we do have some archaeological evidence that this took place in such and such a year. That's great and valid. But then that doesn't negate all the other levels. That just adds to it. It's and, 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 and. Yes? And um, the part in the Kabbalah, they picked to interpret or to shine the splendor of. Yes. Zohar, Zohar means splendor. splendor. It's something untouchable. But you feel the, you feel the effect of it all the time. Mm -hmm. because it's like the sunshine it penetrates 
Lovely. My grandson is named Zohar. Your grandson is Zohar, and he is he is he illuminates us. Talk about the, I think the radiance that the word in the Zohar actually. Zohar is, means. In the Zohar, though, the word for the light is Kardenuta, which apparently doesn't appear anywhere else. But if Kardenuta. Yeah, and it's um, it's the cup like. Um, Resh Dalad Nun, I can't remember if it's mm-hmm. cup or tear, but it's radiant. Radiant. And it's actually a borrowing from the one of the other languages at the time. It must have been whatever it was. Mm-hmm. It's the radiance. It's radiant. Provençal or something yeah. like that. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rabbi, yes, sir. If it doesn't, that's okay. Just forget about it. But it, the second reading, is there a connection to the first reading? There are two different sources. Two that, different things. Two different readings. Okay, forget it. Yeah, yeah, two different readings. Michael? You said on and on and on. You said and, 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 and. Right. You should mention also perhaps the um, octaves. Oh, that's right. So uh, I said and, 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 as opposed to but. You know, the first rule of improvisational theater is you don't, if someone says something, you don't say no. You say, oh, oh yes, and... And you, so you can keep the scene going, right? So there is a tradition which uh, uh, Michael knows about um, and uh, Linda knows about as a, as a scribe in training, where one of the ways that a Torah scroll is traditionally written is they ta- the scribe times their um, writing so that when they have to go up to a new column, they're at a word that begins with the letter Vav, which means and. And if you scroll through our Torah, you will see a vav at the top of every wow. single column Except in our Torah. Huh? Except for Bereshit. Except for the beginning, Bereshit, in the big bet. So, and, 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 through the whole Torah. And the letter vav, the letter vav, it means and, because vav, as a prefix, v means and. And vav in a pictogram <coughs> is a hook. It's a connector. So there's this idea that Vav is the letter that connects, connects heaven and earth, connects. And so that makes sense, since it means and. So then this will be the lesson that I learned, what, at the EST training 40 years ago? <laughs> Not to say but, to say and after everything. That's right. Yud, hey, Vav, hey which is the holy name, the four-letter name of God that we don't pronounce. We say Adonai when we see it traditionally, has the letter Vav connecting the two He's, which He is, and there's, we can play with that symbolism and get really, get really high on life together, <laughs> contemplating the name of God. Uh, in the letter Aleph, when you see the way an Aleph is written, there's a Yud and a little Yud, <laughs> and a vav that connects them. Um, as, and there's so many teach, beautiful teachings about this. Gail? So one piece of this, with the, particularly with the vav Torah, is when we say, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, God is one. Mm-hmm. When you have an entire Torah that just keeps going and, 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 mm-hmm. you're making it one. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is one. That's right. And pointing to the oneness behind the garment. The oneness behind the garment. I want to talk about that. Because you're really... The spine of your Torah. 
Yes, Pardon me? Oh, yes, here's a beautiful vav on the spine of your Torah. The vav is the spine and the body. Oh, yes, in the body, the vav is the spine. In the lulav, I was teaching about this the other night. You brought your lulav in. May I? Yeah. So the vav is also the spinal column, which is what connects our entire being, right? The central nervous system, the spinal spinal, um, cord that uh, is represented, the lulav, this is the lulav, it means palm frond in English. The lulav is considered to be a vav in our tradition, and the, um, I'll fix it later, and the, uh, the myrtle and the willow are considered to be the letter hey and the letter hey, and the etrog, which I didn't take out, the, the, is considered to be the yud. So the idea, again, that it's also a tradition that the lulav is considered to be the spine. The etrog, I'll get it. And this, by the way, is a Jewish symbol, a Jewish symbol that is virtually unchanged for over 2,000 years now. Um, Another tradition is that the etrog is the heart. The myrtle are the eyes because of the shape of those leaves. And the willow is the mouth because of the shape of their leaves. And the lulav is the spinal column, meaning heart, eyes, mouth, and so it's all of us also. I, um, I just really love that. So this is a vav. This is a vav. And lulav adds up in gematria. to 68, which is the numerical equivalent of Chayim, which is life. So I just think that's a cute one, too. So what I wanted to... Rabbi, what does Eitz HaChayim mean? Pardon me? Eitz HaChayim. Eitz HaChayim, the tree of life. Thank you. Um, What I wanted to say about and is that it is the nature of our consciousness on the physical world, the world of doing, and essential to say, but, right? To make boundaries, to say, yes, but, to have moral boundaries, but, right? And that is a crucial level. You know, that's why um, uh, the body of the Torah is the commandments. Did you notice that in this reading? In other words, Kabbalah does not ignore the need for moral boundaries. It's essential to how we live in the world. Right? This is not an animistic system, a, oh, laws don't matter. That's never Judaism. It's a yes and, that behind the body, which we have to live in, we have boundaries. This is me. This is not me. There's also a realm of and, 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 and. And those aren't contradictions. Those are points of view. The point of view of myself and my life has to be, I'm doing this, but I'm not doing that. This is right. This is wrong. 
And yet, if we could step back and back and back from all those garments of life and see that it is in fact the good, the bad, and the ugly, all one. It's all one. And while we're in the game, we're trying to promote the good. And that's what we're here for. And yet, if our consciousness can embrace the end of everything, then, I don't know, for me, I take it all a little more lightly. I can keep pursuing what for me is the body of the Torah, the need to pursue ethics and righteousness, and I can at the same time hold myself more lightly and do it without the kind of investment that'll kill you, you know, that'll grind you down, that'll wear you out, because you're able to step back and remember that this too shall pass, it's all one, that doesn't mean we're not in the game. And so it's kind of like a carrying a multiple levels of consciousness at the same time. That's what I'm thinking about the and. Mm-hmm. The and doesn't contradict the but. Right. It incorporates the but. Mm-hmm. Um, here's an even older saying than the Zohar. This is from the third century and is the last phrase. You don't have it on your pages. I, I won't pass it out. It's very short. You've heard it. Some of you have heard it before. The way the Pirkevot ends, which is the teachings of our sages, the wisdom sayings of our sages, is with this phrase. Ben Bagbag would say, turn it and turn it, for everything is in it. Reflect on it and grow old and gray in it, and do not turn away from it, for there is no better way than this. He's referring to Torah. The turning and the turning is also a symbol of the rolling of the scroll. Mm Mm-hmm. But they also talk about how Torah has 70 facets mm-hmm. in the Talmud. So it's also turning a gem. Mm-hmm. And each time you turn it, so it's also a very three-dimensional. Well, that, that's what it felt like to me when you said mm-hmm. turn it and turn it. That it's just all the different ways of looking all at it. All the facets, yeah. all the ways you can look at it. And you'll see when we study Torah, there's a number 70 will come up. And uh, because 70 is the representation, remember, it's a 7 times 10. It represents... Wholeness, all of it. Yeah. And here's one more I'll read. Once, as Ben-Azai was expounding the scriptures, flames blazed up around him, and being asked whether he was a student of the mysteries of the chariot of God, he replied, Well, I string together like pearls the words of the Torah with the words of the prophets, with the words of the writings, and so all the words of Torah rejoice as on the day when they were revealed in the flames at Sinai. So he's, uh, it's a typical image of like uh, seeing the fire behind, the holy fire that's in the burning bush. Not the fire that consumes, but the fire that animates everything that we see. Occasionally we get a glimpse of the holy energy that animates all of creation. And the Jewish, one of the Jewish ways to do that is by doing this with the words of Torah. So, let's look at the last chapter of the Torah, which we'll be chanting a few verses of. um, And you will find it on page um, 1426.
1426. Would someone like to read in English from chapter 34 in the middle of that text? Anybody enjoy reading? Okay, yeah. 34 and Yeah. Mm-hmm. Moses went up from the steps of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the summit of Pisgah, opposite Jericho, and the Eternal showed him the whole land. Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the whole land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negev and the plain, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Eternal said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will assign it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not cross there. Okay, stop right there. This is a famous passage, right? Every sentence has begun with a vav in this chapter so far. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Uh, Karen noticed that every sentence uh, in this chapter... V, so v, 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 uh, through, through verse 10. Uh, so the first 10 verses all begin with the vav Karen is noticing. Um, so this is a famous scene. He gets to see the whole land, but you shall not cross there. He gets to see the promised land. So on the physical, we won't spend a lot of time talking about this day because we're going to run out of time, but on the physical level, that's the land of Israel. There it is. The great sea, the Negev, Don, Judah, the hills of Judah, the valley of Judah. We, you can stand there on the, in the Jordanian mountains and you can see all of it, except you can't see all the way to the sea. The, it's not high enough to see from there, though you can see the sea from the Judean hills. You can't see it from across the Rift Valley. But we don't know where Mount Nebo is. So, right. Here, we'll read on. Why don't you read on, um, uh, um, Gail? So Moses, the servant of the Eternal, died there in the land of Moab at the command of the Eternal. God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab near Bet Peor, and no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the Israelites bewailed Moses in the steps of Moab for 30 days. The period of wailing and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the Israelites heeded him, doing as the Eternal had commanded Moses. Never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Eternal singled out face to face for the various signs and portents that the Eternal sent him to display in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his courtiers and his whole country and for all the great might and awesome power that Moses displayed before all Israel. The end. So we're start, we're just, we went to the end, but when we start at the beginning, this is the end of the whole five books of Moses, in the beginning, and this is where it ends, with Moses. Michael. Moses was the for today. 
Oh, so let's talk about what Ushpizin are. People don't know that. You invite guests into the sukkah, and traditionally the seven days correspond to the seven patriarchs, the seven, well, Abraham, Isaac, Yitzchak, Moses, Aaron, Joseph, and David are the official seven Visitors. Days. So today was Moses, and, and now this evening we inaugurate the day for Aaron. And this, this heroic, the way they're paired is very beautiful. Abraham is Chesed, of course. Yitzchak is Gevura. Um, Yaakov is um, Tiferet. Moses is Netzach. Aaron is Holod. Yosef is Yesod. And um, David. David is Malchut. I can teach you more about that, but not today. Those, what he was just describing. But uh, the patriarchs, in the Torah and the other those become sim, become symbolic of different qualities in Jewish mystical um, text and so on Sukkot we want to invite each of those qualities into our Sukkah so that at the end of Sukkot we've invited the whole tree of life to be in our Sukkah with us the whole so, and yes, today is the day when we invited Moses into our sukkah. So that's beautiful. So, um, I love how this ends with the death and then Barisha will begin kind of with the birth that really mm-hmm. speaks to the cycles of life and to remembering that that all follows one another. Like that. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, if we had more time tonight, we won't have time. A million questions arose for me as I was reading this. Thoughts, ideas, what, oh, and, 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 and. <laughs> um, and uh, we can certainly taste, touch them and taste them, but, but uh, other sort of more, but in the interest of um, other, so you just read the end of the five books of Moses. Other reflections, reactions, anything else anyone wants to say? Chapters are Lamad Gimel and Lamad Dalad, aren't they? So they add up to. And then it goes to Aleph Lamad. I like that. I like that it's 33 and 34. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 77. So I have like a really uh, visceral response. Yes. To it. yes. Gail, what was your response? Yeah, I mean, it just like, it was just very dramatic and very, very intense feeling reading that and knowing that was the end. Mm-hmm. Moses is going to die. He knows he's going to die. He gets to go up to the top of the mountain and see the whole land. And then he dies, Alpi Adonai, from the mouth of God. Alpi literally means by the command or the directive of God. How did our translator do it? Uh, I'll... Um, Oh, yeah, in verse 5, at the command of the eternal. The Midrash loves this line, just one second in, because they say, Al-Piyadonai means from God's mouth. And so they say that Moses died because God kissed him on the mouth and drew his essence back. Isn't that beautiful? And, uh, and the reason that we don't know where Moses is buried is a long Jewish tradition of not wanting to make a man into 
an icon or an idol. So no one knows where Moses is buried so that it couldn't become a, uh, a holy site. Even though that's almost like a human impulse to go to graves and pray at the graves, right? And yet we don't get to do that with Moses. Well, look what Hebron's become. Look what Hebron's become. But I also think of just people who go to their go to their family graves to pray, to talk to their ancestors. It's like it's a natural impulse. And we're not are not with Moses. We don't want to confuse Moses, the messenger, with the message. What is that line in Buddhism? If you meet the Buddha on the road, you should, you should kill him. Right? Don't confuse the messenger with the message. And Moses was our messenger, bringing this to us. Uh, Anne? You're talking so positively about how wonderful it is that Moses gets to see. I didn't mean it that way. I felt very poignant about it. Well, personally, I never got over the fact that God's punishment, and it was a punishment. Yep. That Moses was never going to see the promised land. He was never going to be able to live there. To set foot in it, yeah. And this, being able to see it, knowing he's going to die, seems mm -hmm. to me to be almost worse than mm -hmm. that punishment. I think it's the most extreme punishment that God delivers in the whole Torah, mm -hmm. that Moses is not allowed to go. And then, on top of that, we have this. Mm -hmm. How are you going to forgive, ever forgive a God like that? Now let's, let's uh, just one sec, and then... And that is true. And now we say, on the level of the way the text tells the story. Come and see. Woe to those who say the Torah is merely a story. So now we get to explore it and say, well, what about life? What do, you, what do we not get to do in our lives when the, when the decree is finally declared? What do we not get to see even though we yearn for it? Um, and then, for me, God is life, and the decree isn't from uh, a punishing God, but from life that is the way it is. That's another level to look at it on. Um, uh, yes, there were a few things people wanted to say. Harris? Yeah, I, I, just, I just took it like the opposite of that. Really? Good. Well, yeah, because some people make it into a croissant. What is and other opposite? people, hold on. Some people take it and make it into a croissant, and someone else is going to take it and make it into a bagel. <laughs> just like we started, right? So it's and. Yours is valid. That is true. What is going on here? And that's something you bake out of the Torah with your interaction with it. And, but here's another one. Um, and I, I, I agree that my view of it is an and view. Uh, I, I just see that Moses had, his life had a purpose and it was like an amazing purpose to bring us to the promised land. And he lived a long time. And God allowed him to see the success of that mission. 
He he allowed him to see the land and the people made it to the land. He let him see that before his time was up. He 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 was given that gift. Wow, what a perspective. What a perspective. We can have that perspective about our own lives. Right? We can we can read it any way we want. And that's part of the point here. Right? There's not a right reading, but there are it's fascinating, isn't it? Leah, Amy, and then Gail. And then we'll have to wrap it up. Oh, and Bob, I'm sorry. Literally, okay, on that level, um, didn't you say once that the, if you were walking from Egypt to Israel, it's like an 11 day 11 walk? days according right. to the Torah. So none of the, none of the Israelites or none of the Hebrews who lived or had known Pharaoh or had known slavery, none of them. A whole generation died out. They were not the ones who made it into mm-hmm. the country. Except for Joshua and Caleb. Except for Joshua and Caleb. But so, uh, with what Harris is saying, but also, they were not the generation that was that was destined to go because they wandered for 40 years. I mm-hmm. I That's another way to look at it. Let, we're going to go through the comments now because we're almost out of time. And Amy and Bob and uh, uh, who else did I recognize? Gail. David and Gail. Okay. I was, I was, um, uh, I'm sorry, your name was? Harris. 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 I saw it the same way you did, and and I kind of saw it as as, um, actually something kind of beautiful in a way, because it it was like the continuity of life. You know, he got to there, he saw the land, and um, was it Noah? Joshua. Joshua. He has the learning, he's going to move on. I mean, that's kind of the continuity of the, of, of the universe. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, one person can't do, do it all. Can't have it all. Right, so it's kind of like a movement. I mm-hmm. thought it was really lovely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bob? Moses died and is buried in the land of Moab. Right. But Moab continues to play a very strong role in Jewish history. Mm-hmm. For example, Ruth, of Ruth and Naomi, mm-hmm. came from Moab. Right. And Ruth is the great grandmother of King David, from whom the line of the Messiah will come from. So, Mo- so, so rather, so, I'm going to make a broad point about that. The more you know your Torah, the more you know your Bible, the more connections you can make. If to be a beginner in anything means that you're picking out a melody on the piano and it sounds nice, it's a nice melody. But to then play and play and play means that you have more and more places where you can say and and you can make connections. Torah study does not reveal itself in its fullness on the first pass. It never reveals itself in its complete fullness. None of us will ever get to the point of knowing our Torah that we see the final connection, right? But it will grow and grow and grow, and that's, again, you get to be a better and better baker, right? Oh, if I add just a little, oh, and I remember I saw this on the Food Channel, and da 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 you know, it's like you get better and better at it. So thank you, Bob. And so the more, we, the more you invest in this particular sacred activity, the more it keeps revealing. And that is my experience.
Otherwise, I wouldn't have any interest in continuing to do this year after year. But uh, it, it's true for me. Yeah? Um, I, I, I thought a lot about this. And just to say, not what I would say about Moses, but nobody except Joshua and Caleb get into the Promised Land, and in Torah, nobody gets into the Promised Land. And as much as it's a metaphor for our own spiritual journey, none of us are ready to live there. And Moses is no different from the rest of us. He is still a flawed human being. He struggles with righteous anger the whole way through. And that's actually what keeps him out in the end. Right. His punishment remember, he was is for his anger. He was, a, I have to say this, he was a murderer, which no rabbis, traditionally, nobody ever wants to talk about it. He murdered an Egyptian slave master. He does it premeditated. He looks around to see if anyone will see him, and then he kills him. This is murder by everything in Torah, by all the commandments. But there by was a reason for It that. doesn't matter. Sure it does. It doesn't matter. He had an option. You can argue this. He didn't have to kill him. He didn't have to kill him. There's a lot else he could have done. And, and it was a passionate... And say, you shall not murder. I'm just, I'm just saying. Yep. I'm just saying that the rabbis traditionally ignore, but I think it's... This is, I wanted to give a Devar Torah on this, actually. When will I you do this Devar Torah? I would have done it. Like <laughs> no, pick a Shabbat. But anyway, but the other thing I want to say that really struck me this time reading it, reading it the Hebrew, is the, the intimacy of this. His intimacy with this divine. He's in such an elevated state. That's the other side of it. So he dies by God kissing him on the mouth. And then God buries him. Mm-hmm. God buries Moses. God buries him. Wow. God buries him. I never noticed that. You can't do anything else in life after that, right? Wow. So, and it says again, and no one else ever was chosen again to sit, to stand, you know, face to face. Face to face. Yad. Oh, it says, it says face to face in the English doesn't do its service. No. Um, uh, singled out face to face says Asher Yidao, who was made known, known to God face to face, intimate knowledge. That's the Hebrew word known, Yada. The known means intimacy. intimacy. Yeah. Is that the interpretation for a kiss? No, that was Alpi Adonai on the by the word of God or by the mouth of God. It can mean either. Where does it say in the English translation that he kissed him? It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. Our translation is always an interpretation. Translation is. Right, every translation is not cannot be literal because words have multiple meanings. Does it say in the Hebrew that he kissed him? It could mean that he died by the mouth of God, or that he died by the word of God. Okay. It can be either one. And, and so we're, 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 David wanted to share something, and then. Oh, let's see. What I wanted to say about uh, what you said, Gail, is that so if Torah is the garment, then the promised land is a physical place in the story, but it's an internal destination in another reading. Because every story is a good story because we are on a journey when we take that story. There's a physical landscape to the story, but that's not what makes it compelling. What makes a good story compelling is the journey we're on. Every place can be the place. It could be anywhere. So, um, David. So many ones. And then Michael, and then uh, Linda, and then I'll conclude. 
so many um, wonderful interpretations. I have a board meeting in five minutes. <laughs> I thought it was so interesting that Harrison and Anne sort of took this same event and saw it in two completely opposite ways. Right. When I was listening to Anne, the first thing I thought of was how, well, in, in the world we're dealing in duality. And so Moses, who was such a great hero, also had this great punishment. And so maybe it was his great, the, the, the greatness of him also was balanced by a great punishment. So it was a, it was a real duality for him to experience that because of, because of. And, and, and that's, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Esther. <laughs> <laughs> but if you look at Greek mythology, that's right. This is mythology. Right. That's how you I mean. This no. is not history. Every hero has an Achilles heel. This is mythology. That's right. That's right. It's Moses dies by the kiss, kiss of God and is buried where no one knows to this day. Does that sound like history or mythology to you, Bob? We'll call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were saying. But I was saying that, that every great hero has an Achilles heel. Mm -hmm. Has something within him that causes his downfall. That's right. So, That's right. Moses is a classic hero. Yeah. Michael, Linda. Okay, Linda. Um, with the the and and I sometimes I also think and and what if and what if it doesn't in these final paragraphs it doesn't actually say that when the Holy One says to to Moses, right, this is the moment you'll you'll see it. Moses says, oh, what a bummer. I mean, he said that back then. Mm -hmm. So even if we were looking at it, he, if we were looking at it at that literal thing of, this isn't what I want, but we don't know that there hasn't been a change right. of mind. Maybe, and, and just something. What if he had seen everything <laughs> there was to see already, and that realization came? Uh-huh. And what if Moses had come to terms with the fact that he was going to die? More than that. Mm -hmm. Or more than that was more than that. Mm -hmm. had all seen possible. The glory of God, because Thanks. that's what you he'd can go seen. Now. Okay, so what if there was nothing left to do? And Bruria? And Alpid, to me, doesn't mean that God kissed him in the mouth. No, that's an interpretation. He died according to That's right. So, the grammatical and idiomatic meaning of Alpi is according to God's word or command. However, the creative reading that the rabbis do, because of the intense intimacy of this scene, is they take that word and they take the liberty of saying, we're not just being literal here, we're going to be imaginative and treat this as poetry. You are correct, grammatically speaking, for absolutely correct. And the rabbis say he died from the pee of God, from God's kiss. You don't have, do you, you understand what I'm saying, right? Of course, but right. there is another, the pair, it has a lot of other words that are attached to it. Lifne, before. That's right. Before it seems that God ordained him to die. So, another advantage of knowing your Bible is knowing your Hebrew. And Bury is blessed with being fluent in Hebrew. And if you're fluent in Hebrew, you get to dance with this text in a way that you can't if you don't. And it's just like adding all of these 
um, skills, all of these chops. If, if they didn't want it to be ambiguous, couldn't it have been by Al-Dubray? Right. I think because the Torah is the way it is, it is intentionally ambiguous. I fully think yeah, that. that that's so now I have to conclude. Let me conclude with what for me in my life experience is what pops in my mind whenever I hear this, which is Martin Luther King, who in his, the night before he died, in his last oration, set, quotes this passage and says, I've been to the mountaintop, and I've seen the promised land, and I may not get there with you, but I'm not afraid. So the power of this passage, now that's an and for me. That makes it come alive for me. That physically, I get the chills every time I do it. That's part of my life experience. So because King knew his Bible, he could translate it into his experience. And then it becomes my experience. And that's what great literature can do for us. And so I'll leave it there. Isn't that beautiful? Great. So thank you, everybody. Come meet next week. Guess where I'm going to be? I'm going to be in Moab. (laughs) Yep. Utah. Utah. (laughs) I'm going to be in Moab, Utah. Karen's going to convene. You're all going to teach the class. Just remember to say and. Just remember to say and, because they're all pathways to where we seem to need to want to go. It's, the, it's, it's not a time to say but, or to say no. Just say, oh, that's interesting, and, and then you're golden. You're going to have a ball. Karen's going to get to set, set the stage and uh, see where you go. And I'm literally going to be in Moab next week with my family hiking. I've never been there before. Look for Moses' grave. I will. <laughs> and, then, and then we're going to see my mo- Ellen's mom, grandma, in New Mexico, and then I'll be home. So I get to take a week out. Oh, nice. yes. Thank you, Rabbi.